0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to A Soulful Revolution, a podcast at the intersection of spiritual transformation and social change. I invite you to pull up a seat at the table as I speak with soulful revolutionaries whose lives are a powerful source of hope and inspiration for me, as I trust they will be for you also. I'm Lauren Gruba thomas I'm a priest, writer, spouse, and twin mama living in Littleton, Colorado, on the traditional homelands of the Arapaho and Cheyenne peoples. My guest today is my dear friend, Hannah Curtis. Hannah, whose pronouns are she, her, is a mother, spouse, lifelong learner, and Jesus enthusiast who resides on La Frontera of El Paso, Texas. She never passes up a chance to discuss theology, abolition, musical theater, radical parenting, Lucille Clifton's poetry, and myriad other topics that point her toward awe, wonder, curiosity, and possibility. And I should note that when Hannah wrote her bio, she included musical theater spelled with an R-E, which is the proper way to do it, as all musical theater nerds know. (laughs) Hannah is also currently a seminarian. She is studying remotely at Church Divinity School of the Pacific, and this year she will also serve as her children's elementary school PTA president. I am so glad to have you on the show, Hannah. Welcome. And this is our first episode, so you're my first guest. I'm so glad that you're here.
1: It is an honor, and I'm just tickled even hearing you read the intro. It's like, it's so full of promise. So I'm I'm thrilled.
0: Well, I'm thrilled too. I want to begin by asking you what it means for you to be a soulful revolutionary. How do you see this work of spiritual wholeness synchronizing with the work that you do in the world as a mom, as a seminarian, as a community organizer? Gosh,
1: I've, I have sat with this idea. I think the, the name choice is so apt, right? Soulful revolutionary. And I think this moment in history asks us to be both i think we need to be both i don't think we get very far in this time focusing on our own spiritual well-being exclusively i think we need soul connection within ourselves and among our communities but to me increasingly like we have to be focused on revolution and it has to be a radical reimagining of everything we've taken for granted. I think we have a chance to be sincere in our questioning about what works as humans, um what works as societies like and I think each of those ideas inform the other, right? I also think like just radical change and this is just my opinion, right? But like radical change without a purpose, without grounding gra- grounding, grounding, in spirituality um, and, and grounding in our actual spirits is not going to get us very far. Um, and I think we've seen a lot of that already because movements without purpose don't go anywhere or mm-hmm. they go far enough and then they flounder. So I think if we want to make effective change, we have to do it with a strong why behind it. Mm. So tell me more about your why. I think for me, my, the older I get, I'm 35 and the older I get, I realize I'm most effective with the people closest to me. I'm most effective with those With whom I'm in relationship right like I can advocate on the national scale, which I do, and I strongly recommend Um, I can agitate for political and social change, but the ways in which I will make the biggest difference are with the people I encounter every day the ones that I learn from and learn alongside and that includes my children right, and I think my so my kids are six and almost nine. My older son's birthday is in two weeks and. I think the longer I'm a parent, the more I realize what a difference you can make in someone's life, mm-hmm. not by just being a parent, but, you know, being a trustworthy adult in children's lives, mm-hmm. that is everything. Yeah. And it sets a foundation for their understanding, right? And then you get that ripple effect of modeling good behavior, <laughs> right? That's like kind of like a weird parenting way to describe it, but like, Yesterday, my younger son and I, we are very similar personalities. We're very passionate. We're very inflamed. And he's six years old and he gets that frustration that I identify with. And I yesterday in a moment of weakness matched him in that frustration.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: I, I was so upset that like things weren't going my way, things weren't going his way. And we were both just kind of spinning our wheels in that feeling And so modeling good behavior for me means going back to him and saying, Hey, buddy, I'm really sorry. Hmm. I spoke to you in a way that I didn't want to, and I shouldn't have. You did nothing to deserve that. And I'm an adult. I manage my own feelings. You don't have to manage my feelings. And offering that apology, first of all, but also that clarity so that my children understand where I'm coming from is paramount to me because that, that means they are people that go out into their worlds and God willing are those people in life, right? Mm -hmm. Like our, you know, my kids are soccer players, right? So like we're a part of a football club. And so the other kids I've told them, Hey, if you ever need anything, you come to me like I'm an aunt, like Mm -hmm. I love you. I will take care of you. I want what's best for you. That is a radical act to me. In a time where people are too quick to write people off, say that things aren't worth their time. It's a radical act um, yeah. to to connect with a human, especially a human that can't give you an immediate benefit, right? Mm-hmm. That it, it, it's not an exchange of what can you do for me? It's you can offer me absolutely nothing and I am choosing to care about you because It matters to me to care about people. What a radically anti-capitalist approach. (laughs) But wow! and again, when you start to think about it, you're like, why do we feel so transactional in our relationships? Mm
0: -hmm. And a
1: huge part of it is capitalism. That tells us that we are only worth as much as we can produce. We are only interested in people for what they can offer us, how they can benefit us. and so it does feel radical and subversive to me to actively resist that in ways as small as relationships. Yeah. And by small, of course, I mean small and actually quite grand. Absolutely. The
0: impact is profound with our children. And it makes it makes me think about the scale and monetization of social media that we, we feel we literally get these dopamine hits and we feel a sense of validation when we post something that gets lots of likes that lots Mm -hmm. of people respond to. And if it gets enough likes, if it gets enough feedback, then it also becomes monetized because advertisers latch onto it. And when we're talking about our children, the, there there isn't a scalability
1: <laughs> or a <Right>.
0: monetization <laughs> to our children. Like they, they cost a lot. <laughs> children are expensive. <laughs> right. Like my daycare costs are more expensive than my mortgage. Right. So when we're talking about children, like the kinds of value that we talk about in our society are not ascribed to kids. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think about when, when Adrienne Marie Brown talks about- this work of activism of social change of nonviolence being fractal that mm-hmm. the work that we do on an individual level is expressed at the interpersonal level is expressed at the communal level is expressed at the societal level is expressed at the universal level so the work that we're doing with our children and that you're describing that you're doing in yourself emotionally to be able to self regulate and bring yourself back and do the healing work from from your own childhood trauma it matters
1: it matters. It matters. And to echo what you're saying, Adrienne Marie Brown, whom I love emergent strategy, her, one of her books, one of the most important books because the metaphors are so poignant. Right. And when she talks about the interconnectedness of, of all created beings, all living beings in the universe, I was like, wow, that makes so much more sense than the narratives were fed. Right Mm. about individualism and right and we talk a lot about this now of American exceptionalism right like we. We don't get very far by ourselves and that's by design right Mm -hmm. I think if the pandemic showed us anything it was that we are frustratingly confusingly bound to each other like. We don't exist as individuals, we exist as a community as a collective why i have no idea (laughs) Um, (laughs) but like yeah when you start to look at all of the science that adrienne marie brown talks about in emergent strategy right of the way that mushrooms receive information and give information to each other the way that like again all of these um like symbiotic concepts come together at the cellular level and that it's not chaotic and random you know when you cut into a star fruit and you look at it and you're like why is this created like this right you look at the designs of a watermelon radish and then you realize that that looks like the cellular splice of whatever else that also looks like those images from the james webb telescope you're like "Oh, we're all connected Mm. like And that is humbling and beautiful. And to me, it's also a rallying cry of like, we're all connected. Mm. Um, Right. And there's that Fannie Lou Hamer quote of like, none of us is free until all of us are free. So
0: I'm curious to hear, I know that your childhood spirituality, the religion of your childhood at least was a different kind of view of humanity, of, of didn't see interdependence, but saw a more individualistic view of the person. So I'm curious, like what were some of the transition points for you that were really meaningful as you move from this? You know, if you want to describe the, the religion of your, of your childhood and like what, what that change looked like for you to this more interdependent view.
1: That's such an interesting question. Um, so I got, I, I grew up southern baptist even though my family is not religious and i got really used to church looking one way being one thing and i i guess the best way to to explain it would be that i i felt a sincere sense that we were putting god into one very distinct shaped box like it looked one way and there were no questions beyond that and anything beyond that one very specific expression was not not unacceptable but just completely beyond understanding of like why would you want God to look any other way why would you question like what where would that come from what would be the purpose and I think for me some of the touch points became (laughs) to go back to use like these nature metaphors is when you start to see the roots push through and you realize my understanding of God is growing beyond this box. Hmm. It's growing beyond this concept. And again, in that very kind of like biological way of there were roots seeking more in my understanding and in my spirituality, I didn't identify it that way at the time, but now I can trace it back and say, oh, um, you know, it's that psalm, deep calls to deep. Mm. In, in Espanol as profundo llamará profundo, right? The profound calls to the profound. And I felt that. And, you know, we talked, you talked briefly in my little intro, right? About, I have a background in musical theater and I felt God. And I felt the divine. So. Like in such a special, sincere way that I think the arts point us to authenticity Mm. and connection and awe, right? You're like, "Why, why do I get chills when I hear this chord? Or what is it about listening to this song even for the hundredth time that moves me? And I felt God in that way and it didn't feel manipulative. It didn't feel prescribed, it felt right and then subsequently you know there were lots of other changes that i think many people go through where you just realize your social and political beliefs do not align with the situation that you're in and i could just tell right and you know it it's things like inclusion where i was growing up in the theater i had tons of gay friends i I never once thought that there was something wrong with being a member of the LGBTQ plus community and then to be told that like oh Christians think it's wrong and I was like. How do I hold these two things mm-hmm. and what I knew to be true in my lived experience I I couldn't deny I couldn't get rid of that, so I was like so where does Christianity fit into that am I allowed to be a person of faith, a person of Christian faith and belief, and also hold these other views to be true. Mm. And I spent a long time in the wilderness of that question. And that's why I call myself a Jesus enthusiast, because I got to the point where I wasn't sure that I could claim the label of Christian, but I could not get over the Jesus piece. So I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know what that means. At that point, right, I was this is kind of in the college, slightly after college phase. Um, and I'm so thankful for all of the ways in which the spirit led me, and she was waiting for me. And a community was waiting to receive me with open arms, right. And it was like, welcome home, here's your seat. And through that course of that kind of wilderness period, we we being, Lee, my spouse and I found the Episcopal Church and it has led to so many beautiful, expansive reawakenings and reimaginings in my life and in the life of our family too, like in our family dynamic, so.
0: Hmm. I wonder were there there people along the way who were guideposts for you of that integration between a, a broader spirituality and a certain and a way of being in the world that was about justice, that was about inclusion?
1: I think, honestly, what was so surprising to me was that it was like a curtain had been drawn in my life between what it meant to be a Christian, again, because it looked one way, it was one way. And when the curtain was pulled back and I realized there was actually no division between these things, right? That actually... The people that I came to know in, in progressive Christian traditions were deeply informed by their faith. And it was their faith, actually, you know, the, and the language used in other traditions, um, I, I just found to be so harsh and mm-hmm. so condemnatory and so shame and guilt-based. And it was such a revelation to be like, oh, wait, we actually have work to do? And it's not stay in your head and worry about your own sin and thank God that you are being saved from hell because you are a sinner and you've done bad things. That is a place you can stay in your entire life. Yeah. And so when that curtain was pulled back for me, I realized we have work to do that. God has given us the work of this world to do. We got to get moving, right? And like I am a person of deep prayer I say confession all the time I'm thankful for repentance for reconciliation that's a huge value of mine, but I don't spend inordinate amounts of time now focused on my own shame and my own. um, Like self flagellation I don't find that to be helpful because that's an easy place to stay. And Mm -hmm. I think the work of the spirit is the hard work of can you look beyond yourself? Can you use what you've learned about and through yourself and your experiences to inform other people, to better other people's lives, right? There was that, that click that was much beyond Charity, much beyond mission trip, much beyond the poor people are over there and we're going to just give them things. It was are we looking at the structures we've built up as a society and how those do or don't work for building the kingdom of God? Mm -hmm. Um, And I use the word kingdom explicitly because there are strong movements toward using the word kingdom. I don't think those are contradictory terms but I prefer to use in this instance the word kingdom because we are already living in a kingdom. We are living in a kingdom of exploitation and capitalism and production and money and and we don't have to do that. Mm. We can change it. Mm. And the fact that that is an idea that can be faith based and yes. deeply faith informed. I was like, put me in coach. Let's sign go. me up. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course it was with the Episcopal church that I first, um, marched in the pride parade. I'm from Atlanta. Mm. And so like marching in the pride parade with my church, realizing what it meant to be a person of reconciliation and healing. There's nothing like that. Like to step into, right? We are supposed to be repairers of the breach. Do we dare step into the breach and work to repair it? Not Mm -hmm. just stand on the sidelines, Mm -hmm. right? Not just say, oh, we'll just put money at this cause. Like we'll just toss money in. Are we willing to step in? With our bodies. With our bodies with our lives, with all of the tools and privileges that we are afforded. Are we willing to step in? Um, I'm in the diocese of the Rio Grande here in El Paso and our Bishop right before we got here. So we live, El Paso is on the border, like the border of Mexico, Texas, and New Mexico. And the Rio Grande is a river and it does actually flow in between Mexico and united states right obviously borders are human inventions um but they just put it right there and right before we moved here our bishop actually performed a eucharist standing in the river Wow. on the border in the breach and it was like i look at the pictures from that and i'm like what a holy moment to step in with our full bodies with our full selves right which extends far beyond the bodily but like and offer healing and Mm. offer communion and offer all of the mystery and all of the wonder that happens in the eucharist Mm. and to say that this is what type of people we are Mm -hmm. i think about that a lot yeah
0: (laughs) I'm curious to hear for you living in El Paso, living in this in-between place, standing in the breach, what does that mean for you as a white woman? What does that mean for you as a Christian person and the ways that given, given the ways that Christian Christianity has been used to colonize, to exploit, to cause harm? How are you subverting those identities? How are you reckoning with those identities in the space that you live in, in your community?
1: That is such a big question. And I'm thankful for the chance to talk about it. Um, we've lived in El Paso for almost four years. This month, actually, four years, and it living here has changed me fundamentally as a person for for the better. It has opened my eyes to so much. It has shown me myself in a lot of ways, and I'm so thankful. Also, the food here is second to none. Like <laughs> <laughs> I bet it the is the food, the culture um so let's talk about your question as a white woman it is so illuminating El Paso is a majority Hispanic city and by Hispanic we mean mostly Mexican right Mexican Mexican American um there are lots of different like subgenres, like ways people identify themselves and we are una mezcla a mix of all of it in a way that you just living here you just realize how superficial division is how man-made borders are right there are people so Juarez is the sister city here and they are called sister cities like I could you can park and walk over the bridge to Juarez like we go and we'll have breakfast you can go shopping you can go get your nails done right it's it's just a city (laughs) Mm like um and we have friends that live on One side who have family on the other, you have people who work on one side live on the other. it's it's continuous and it's not cross cultural it is the culture here it it, I guess, defines the culture it it boundaries, the culture in a certain way of we're all here in this place together. And again, you can see the distinct differences in like home styles, right? The homes over in Juarez tend to be like more colorful and slightly closer together versus what you see on like in our neighborhood, for instance. But you just realize like people are people and everybody Mm. wants to live in peace and safety. Everybody wants to enjoy themselves. Everybody wants a better life for their kids. We're all human, you know, and like all of the barriers and all of the divisions that I think we put up as society, as cultures, as races. Um, Like I'm learning Spanish now. I have a tutor, I speak Spanish every day because I'm lucky to be in a city where there are so many native Spanish speakers. And there are definitely secondary Spanish speakers like me, but um, most people here are bilingual. And what a gift, what a gift it is because language is culture language tells you about a community language offers you something new it shows you a different way to relate a different um like channel by which you can connect it's so also i just love spanish as a language um and i say that to you knowing that you're also a spanish speaker right <laughs> and like you know the beauty of the language yeah um but i will say when i was in high school in an atlanta suburb it was very clearly understood and and not i can't point to an explicit understanding of this but i learned french in high school Hmm. because french was a higher class language wow (laughs) like and and again i don't know that anybody said that explicitly to me but that was certainly the undertone was yeah a hierarchy of value And why would you want to learn Spanish? Like who speaks Spanish other than construction workers, right? Like, again, not saying that anyone officially imparted that wisdom to me, but that was very clearly the sentiment. Mm -hmm. And now I, it's so funny traveling to a place that's not El Paso. I connect with every service worker that speaks Spanish, every A salesperson that I can tell as a Spanish speaker and it is a beautiful point of connection of recognition of shared humanity of Mm -hmm. joy it. And again, when we talk about being repairers of the breach, these are cultural racial ethnic tears that we've made in our society that we need to heal, there is so much waiting for us on the other side of our fear yeah. our uncertainty our hesitation um but it also requires an amount of humility that i don't know that a lot of people are ready to walk into <laughs> hmm.
0: um i wonder if you could speak to that piece more because for me when when you bring up the question of humility that's really connected to curiosity and those, those two virtues live in the same house. Like they're, they or do. they're at least next door neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> they're really good friends. Yes. Um, and to practice humility is to say, I'm going to put myself in a position where I will realize the things that I don't know, where I might even be embarrassed to discover the things that I have been wrong about that I've been, yes, and, and that there's sometimes even some guilt or even shame of, wow, I've done or said some things that are really hurtful to people or to groups of people. And how can I, how can I transform? How can I do that spiritual work and then have that fuel the activity in the world and in my neighborhood? So I I, I wonder, yeah, how curiosity, humility play out for you in, in your community. Like what are specific ways in which you find yourself navigating your neighborhood?
1: Well, this is The danger of white supremacy is such that even as a racial minority here, as a white person, and I am, for those who can't see me at home, um, I am white, (laughs) you know, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And I remember early on in our time in El Paso feeling a, a, a little prickle of like, wait, I there are things that like there are conversations going on around me and I can't understand them. I uh-huh. I felt that, that sensation of the need for, um, I I don't even want to say dominance necessarily, but like it's white supremacy. It's the idea that there's a hierarchy here and that as a white person, I have been used to being the dominant racial majority. Right. And and again, it's not just race, it's, it's culture, it's language. And it is so challenging, even as a, again, progressive leftist white person to be like, oh, wait, I am actively entering into spaces where I want to give that up. I don't want that. And... That assumption of normalcy, of comfort. Exactly. But... When you live outside of what is comfortable to you, it's uncomfortable, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, duh and And again, I think white supremacy teaches us that we aren't supposed to be as white people. We're not supposed to be uncomfortable.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: No, no, no. <laughs> and like and and then you move to a place like this where that's a ludicrous idea. Like the idea that you would want to be in an all white space or a majority white space for your own comfort. I look around now at what beautiful, again, like culture, experience, relationship exists, community exists on the other side of that. And it was almost like a button was pushed and that little barrier just came down for me. And Mm. it has not been easy. It's asked me to interrogate a lot of my biases yeah and in the course of doing that interrogation which is deep self-reflection work and there are so many tools that i encourage people to seek out if they are interested in doing the work because there are so many people who should be paid for their labor who have been so generous as to make roadmaps for people if you are willing if you are ready here is a path for you to take. Mm. And I'm so thankful. I'm thankful for a community that has received me with open arms that has never once intentionally made me feel like an outsider in the way that were it reversed. I can 100% say, right. That white supremacy culture is going to make people of (laughs) when, when white is normative, anyone who is non-white is made to feel uncomfortable. So when that dynamic is completely upended, like it is just there's so much waiting for us Mm. as a a people, as a society, as humans journeying on this confusing path of life together. Um, It has meant looking like an absolute buffoon a lot of times. Like I look so foolish, (laughs) especially when I'm in Situations and conversations where people are majority Spanish speaker native Spanish speakers right so then there are conversations, even if they're. Mostly or all in Spanish where i'm even as a language learner i'm not going to get everything and being an adult who suddenly makes like language grammar mistakes in front of other people ugh. Yes. There's a reason that humility <laughs> is
0: linked to the word humiliation. <laughs> like, right. There's a there's a, a a humbling and a and a lowering of oneself and an embarrassment that can accompany yes. the freedom that I hear you describing and of like, being in community.
1: Yes. But okay, so like I have I had a I was talking to two friends of mine and one of them had just done something very sweet. And so in Spanish I said, eres el mejor. Like, you are the best. But it was a woman. And so the other person in the conversation is a native Spanish speaker friend of mine. And she goes, la mejor. And I was like, <laughs> dang it. Right. And it was like, so simple. And and so for those who don't speak Spanish, it Spanish is a gendered language. So el mejor just indicates that the recipient of that is male. And I was speaking to someone who is not male. And those are simple mistakes. Native Spanish speakers make them all the time. But like, in that moment, I was like, oh, I'm so like, I'm such an embarrassment. Like, I can't mm. even get the basics right. But I had people who surrounded me with love who told me about my mistake. And who laughed it off with me. And we kept going. Like, mm, that's beautiful. What a gift. What a yeah. gift to me. Right? Like, to get to learn a language and to be raising my children in a community and a culture that is so warm and so understanding Mm. and so receptive to people and experiences Mm. and all of it. So so come visit El Paso. That's what I'm saying to everybody. I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm struck by
0: the way that you describe transformation happening in the context of community. I often talk with folks in when I do nonviolence training, I often talk to people about the importance of being able to hold one another accountable and that the key word in that phrase is hold that if we mm. don't have a container in which we are trusting that we care about, that we are cared for and that we will care for one another when the conflict moments happen, because they will, when we're doing mm-hmm. work, when we're, when we're engaging in, in the meaningful spiritual work when we're doing the social change work it gets hard it gets uncomfy <laughs> it gets rightful. it gets <laughs> and it act it activates trauma it activates the stories that we've told ourselves about not belonging or about not being not being worthy to be a mm-hmm. part of a community and so when we are in communities of care and mutuality where we know that people are folks who have our backs and love us then when we make those mistakes there, there's a graciousness. Um, And we also are aware of the, what the power dynamics are at play. You know, I, I know that you and I often have had conversations about um, experiences that we've had with, with, let's say with people of color or with queer folks, or when we recognize, okay, there is an imbalance here of, of social, of the power that we hold in our society and that we need to be able to process some of these things with people who hold a similar amount of power. Um, and so it's a dance (laughs) it's, it's a dance that we engage in. It's, it's not perfect. We're, we get off balance sometimes. So we step on toes, um, and we change dance partners (laughs) accordingly. Um, but I, I just find really, really hopeful that image that you're sharing of, of your community where folks are able to say, Hey, there's, a place where your, your language wasn't quite hitting the mark, wasn't quite ringing true. And let me help you.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, again, that's why I go back to like, we are people meant for each other. Mm. I hold diversity as a, as a primary value of mine because I'm always made better by hearing about the experiences and perspectives of other people especially when they are radically different than my own right and that doesn't mean one way is better than the other necessarily there are definitely times where that is the case but just the understanding of someone different right and that could be different in terms of like power dynamics class dynamics racial um, sexual orientation dynamics or it could just be somebody who receives the world differently yeah (laughs) right like knowing oh like so for instance my my spouse lee and i are very different people and he i am like very explosive firecracker sometimes like big big outward energy and so i say like if i am a supernova lee is a black hole it's not that he has less energy (laughs) right it's just that it's completely internalized and Mm -hmm. it's a powerful force expressed completely differently and it's been important for me in my own growth and understanding to say, oh, I'm not any better than like my way of doing things isn't any better, but it's also not any worse. It's just different. Yeah. And to appreciate the the beautiful diversity of our experiences and our perspectives. Like we're all made better by that. Um, I think, though, you highlight something really important, which is you have to have a community to hold you. Yeah. And you have to have people who are willing to be honest with you. Absolutely. And you also have to be willing to be honest with yourself. Mm. And that work to me is also best done in community Mm. where your community should show you the best parts of yourself. That should be a playground for you to express the best parts of yourself. Right? Like being a parent for me means Oh, all of the like silly, goofy, playful parts of me can be one hundred percent honored and appreciated in this, but also my like hard won perspective on other things can be imparted to these people that I have been entrusted with. Both of those are important, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and to, both of those are two things that I take very seriously about myself. Like, I always say I do not take myself seriously at all, but I take what I do very seriously. Hmm. So teaching that to my kids and saying it's important to laugh and be silly and have dance parties and play Hmm. and it's important to pay attention and be respectful and to be self reflective and to do justice in the world right and when we say our prayers before meals, our our family meal prayer has evolved over time. But one of the last lines is, and keep us hungry and thirsty for justice.
0: Hmm.
1: Like, I think if we don't keep that reminder, we'll forget. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, so having a community to hold the best parts of you and to reflect back the places where you can grow is paramount.
0: Yeah. So we have a question from a friend who is not yet a listener because this is our first episode, but I (laughs) hope (laughs) so. I hope she'll become a listener and we're going to try, I'm going to do this every time, every episode, do a listener question. So this question comes from Sandra and you've touched on some aspects of this, but I'd love to invite you to um, explore some of the practical invitations for our listeners. She asks us, I always want to ask white people who are doing the work and including immigration justice, why and how did you begin? What are three things that anyone could do to start on that trajectory?
1: It's such an important question. Number one, I'm I'm thankful that the question is explicit, right? It's not, oh, well, you know, mission work, helping, helping. It's like, no, you're a white person doing very specific work. Why? Right? Like we need to ask those direct types of questions sometimes. Our diocese runs a shelter for asylum seekers, migrants and refugees we are one of several places where when people are released from border patrol uh, they will be sent to our shelter and we are (laughs) a scrappy operation um there is the church that i go to actually has relinquished their old sunday school rooms and um use of their parish hall so that we can receive guests people we've installed a shower and a washer and dryer in the like you know bathrooms for the parish hall, and so people come to us to have a hot shower to make contact and finalize travel details with their sponsors and to rest and. So the diocese has been in several iterations of, of border ministry for a while, obviously because we're here on the border, and I think, as the needs have emerged, we have done our best as a diocese to be responsive to the actual need um so I'll I'll kind of go at Sandra's question in a couple different ways so I think number one is how how to do the work or what can I encourage people to do understand the needs around you and don't presume that your perspective is the valid one use who you are and what your perspective can offer you to support the work that most likely is already going on in communities of color like usually you will find Whatever cause is important to you, there are already people on the ground engaged in the work. So I think that would be suggestion number one is find out what the needs are if you're interested in engaging in work for people who are actively marginalized or who are in desperate need figure out what they need. Um, I just started volunteering and and why did I start volunteering, because I had the privilege of time to donate. So I think that's another part of it of being a white person who is in a financial situation where we have one working parent and one, I am a non working parent currently well I am um, a non (laughs) I don't make a salary but. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so time was a privilege that I could donate and I felt it was really important to do that, but i'll tell you what. (laughs) Doing the work like looking in people's eyes as they are on a holy journey to protect themselves and their families to have a life that is safe and to be able to provide for their their whatever family dynamic their people right it doesn't even have to be kids it can just be themselves it can be multi-generational family structures like people who are trying their hardest to do their best by the life that they've been given. When you look into the eyes of people who are willing to give up everything for what they hope to God is true, you just realize how insignificant so many of our like kind of made up problems are. Right. And you just realize how lucky we are to live in a place. And I mean, a time and space where most of us have resources at our disposal. And I think I've just, I have been offered a glimpse of what hope and liberation look like. I have been lucky to participate in people's journeys. Mm. And there are few things that I take more seriously than how we treat each other. Um, And in that perspective is deeply informed by my work at the shelter. Um, You know, (laughs) it's so funny. I guess it's not funny. It's it's ironic and sad how many people come to our shelter and say, you are the first people that have smiled at us. Wow. One younger child asked his mom, why are they being so nice to us? And she said, because they love God. Mm. And they think this is what God wants them to do is take care of people. What? That's wild to have the opportunity to show God to people. It's everything. Mm. And I think you realize, I have realized too, what it looks like to relinquish power and privilege. And also to utilize that for the good of as many people as possible. And I think both of those things are really true um, and really important. Um, So I think maybe the second part of Sandra's question is to say like, right, what what can people do? So number one, I would say identify the needs in your community or a community that you would like to serve. Don't presume to come in and have all the answers and know what to do, be responsive. So the second point I think is be really self-reflective. Do an interrogation of yourself, where are your biases, where are your privileges. What are you willing to give up, what are you willing to leverage, because there will definitely be moments where you want distance, you want to say oh I, I that I, I, I can't be too close to that that touches a little too. That that's something a little too sensitive to me or that brings up a feeling that I'm not ready for. Be ready and willing to engage in those difficult conversations and questions. I think as a white person too, part of it is saying like, this is the need. This is a need in my community, and I'm going to do what I can to support the ongoing work to meet that need. I'm going to bring who I am to the table as well, right? There was a group of um, women at one point, and, and for the sake of respecting people's privacy i'll I'll give very few details, but there was a group of women who, until they had come to our shelter did not know each other, this is probably I don't know six or seven. um, women from the same country but previously not friends and at this point right they're all kind of like chatting with each other they're joking we're having good little conversations and one of them kind of pulls me aside and asks me. If I have and again i'm still learning Spanish so there are definitely terms. (laughs) that i'm like wait (laughs) what Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and basically she was asking me for like a charcoal pencil because she wanted to do some eyeliner Mm -hmm. and i just in that moment i thought oh my gosh all of our creature comforts the the (laughs) the simple pleasure of putting on eyeliner right like had not been afforded to her in however Mm -hmm. long and i was like on it (laughs) So I ran down there's a dollar tree that's not too far from the shelter and I like drove down there really quick and came back with one of almost every beauty product that they had there and. The joy, the way that these women lit up from something so simple right. That wasn't a need need and yet it was such a deeply met need. Yes. It's an affirmation
0: of dignity,
1: dignity. And I'm so glad you said that because that's like a huge thing that we talk about is welcoming people with dignity. Just seeing the humanity in another person, seeing their humanness and allowing yourself to be seen as human too. Right. Acknowledging our human limitations, which is just that like, I can't meet every need. Right. I won't be able to solve every problem, but I can sit and be here and be human with people for the time that we are given to share. And I have to believe that the spirit is working in and through and for us. In a way that this is not the end of right. And. So the eyeliner right that's like a silly thing but it's so meaningful. And it would have been completely overlooked if I wasn't paying attention, Yeah. right? So I think another thing is pay attention to the mm-hmm. ways in which you can share humanity with people.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: when a smile sounds- is a commodity. Yes. Be generous, yeah. give yeah. a smile, right? Like, so I think it's about being responsive and understanding who you are and who you can be Mm -hmm. In any given context, I think that's really important, too. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually led a couple workshops for a really great school in the Atlanta area. And I did a couple Zoom workshops with several grades worth of kids who were interested. Their teacher contacted me because they were learning about immigration and laws and how to advocate. And they were like, what can we do? And I did several workshops with these incredibly sweet humans and we talked about ways in which we feel welcome in a space and they went on a tour through their school and said like what things tell us that we're welcome here and then as a response to that activity they made welcome booklets for children primarily children that are being received in our shelter they sent over several boxes of stuffed animals because they said like oh well stuffies like that helps us feel cozy and safe and happy oh, they did picture books of like mm. this is how you say this word in spanish and this is how you say this word in english wow. and granted not all of our um not all of our shelter guests are spanish speakers like we have turkish speakers we have haitian creole speakers french speakers ukrainian speakers it's not all spanish but by and large i think that's the language majority. And so it's also, I think, recognizing what is yours to do and what might be better, right? We can advocate for policy change, knowing that that is slow going work that's meant for larger institutions and meet human to human needs as best we can in the moment. We can do both. Mm, mm
0: -hmm. That's right, both ends. Yes. Mm. Well, thank you, Hannah. I'm so Ah! grateful, so grateful for your soulful revolutionary work in the world and for your being here with, with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to A Soulful Revolution. This podcast is entirely made possible by listeners like you. If you like what you heard today, invite a friend to subscribe. We'll see you next time.